Ba 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 da ba boom. Sound. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 127 of Drinks with Tony with my guest Andrew Nichols. Check out his new book, Comedy Writer Craft Advice from a Veteran of Sitcoms, Sketch, Animation, Late Night, Print, and Stage. We chat a lot about his years on Johnny Carson, and Andrew tempts me with his dreamy eyes. March 6th at 6 p.m. Pacific Time is the free create online creative writing workshop I teach at the Los Angeles Public Library. Set your calendar, and the info should be on lapl.org in the next week. Search for programs at the Los Feliz branch. One of the great things about pandemic life is you don't need to live in Los Feliz or even Los Angeles to take advantage of the free online creative writing workshop I teach every month. And now, the moment you've been waiting for, two members of the future folk band Naked Studs on Zoom. Hi, I'm Andrew Nichols, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show! Yeah! You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Andrew Nichols. He's the author of Comedy Writer, a guide to creating comedy for print, TV, and stage. He's written for stand-up comics, radio, stage, cartoonist, industrial shows, humor websites, film, and TV. His partner, Daryl Vickers, have created sitcoms from Dabney, for Dabney Coleman, Bronson Pinchot, oh, you have to correct me on that, Faye Dunaway, Terry Garr, Robert Townsend, and others. They were head writers on NBC's Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. They have staffed over 100 TV series and pilots and written 400 cartoon episodes, including J Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius, and Fairy, Fairly, <laughs> Fairly Old pa Odd Parents. The team, has got, the team has sold 80 pilot scripts, of which 35 have been produced, 20 have gone on to series, and the host of this show needs to start working on his tongue twister exercises because obviously that was a that was a that was a jumble and I should have done that better. Andrew, how are you? I am so good. I'm I'm better obviously than Bronson Pinchot of Perfect Strangers, although I suppose his name was more often seen on the credits than actually heard back when he was writing high. Oh, okay. How was it working with him? Which one he was, was actually, he? Because this is this is where I'm he at was, with it. He was bulky. He was bulky. bulky okay. the, the crazy, the crazy foreign um, relative of Cousin Lowry. Yeah. Uh, he, Bronson had been spotted, I guess, in Beverly Hills Cop originally, uh, where he had a short bit as an art gallery uh, operator that that bowled everybody over, and he got a series. And then uh, Perfect Strangers ran for about eight years, I think, and we got him the September of the year that that series ended. So he had an he had a CBS on on air commitment. Oh, okay. And we ruined him. <laughs> did you? <laughs> or did he ruin? Did he ruin himself? No, he was. Take he was some really responsibility, uh, Mister. He, uh, he was a total pro. Anything you gave him, he could do, which was astounding. You get one of those people who I told the story, I think, in the book where we actually had a show that ran twenty-three seconds short, which is not common in sitcom. But we had a child in the show, and we had gone over the number of hours we could work a child under California labor law. And the show was very strictly timed and we were 20, 23 seconds short for the show. And Bronson came to us and said, um, how much you need? And we said, we need 27 seconds. He said, give me a second. There had been an earlier bit with a gag about him keeping his underwear in the fridge so that he could wake up, really wake up in the morning. So he goes off and he says, yell, yell roll. And the director said, okay, you know, action. He walks in singing an, the aria from Nesum Dorma 
reaches into the fridge, takes out a pair of underwear that he had put there, walks over to the toaster and waits, still singing. The toaster pops up and his socks fly out and he catches them as the aria ends. And we look at our watches, 23 seconds. So that is a professional. And then yeah. he said, he said, you want another one for a safety? And he did it again, exactly the same for 23 wow. seconds. Yeah. People don't realize, you know, like this, you know, yeah, it, it, like bulky, bulky, his character and stuff. It could be construed as like, oh, he's the buffoon. And there'll be like a, there'll be like a, um, an ex expectation that he's kind of goofy all the time, but they don't realize that the art of what they have been working on, the precision of timing for years and years to get to that point where he, he can just have, we, we need 23 seconds filled and he can do it and he's on point and he remembers every step, every move. It's and probably, yeah, doing uh, nearly a decade of television, which yeah. is so, um, it's such a journeyman job. You're so tied to box rundowns and exact timings. I mean, people don't realize it, but every scene you see in the sitcom, someone has walked from the camera lens to the actor's nose at every point they stand in every scene and measured the distance for focus. Um, there is no autofocus in TV and that was for film and for tape and you know digital now. Um, and so that's an enormous amount of professionalism and construction. You know, they construct it like you build, like you build a tree fort that your kids are gonna be in. Yeah. Um, it blows my mind. I love, I love actors and I can never do it. You know, I, I've tried, but man, you know, they, they're in it for the passion. Just, I kind of feel like just like writers, you know, it's like we got the, um, we got the kind of the brutality of the nuts and bolts of the days ins and days outs of what we got to do. But in the end, we, I wouldn't give it up for anything. And you know, writers get to hide. You get to hide when you need to. You can go out to the coffee shop after a pan and nobody looks at you and thinks, oh man, poor guy. Nobody knows who you are. Right. <laughs> Unless you're one of the biggies. If you're Jonathan Franzen, probably, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, you do get to, uh, I, I, I've said, several times that the writers are in many cases, especially in Punch-Up, we did a lot of, my partner and I did a lot of Punch-Up on sitcoms um, in the 90s and the two, early 2000s. But you can be like the roadies at a rock band. You can destroy the motel and the pool in Cincinnati and the next night you're in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> you come in, you punch up someone's show, you give them what you think are the best lines you can think of and then you leave. Yeah. And then on Wednesday, you're on another show. Yeah, and you talk about that in the book. What is the... Um... And, and punching up means that you're coming in to like make a script better. Usually, when, if you're comedy guys, which Daryl and I have always been, you're coming in to make it funnier. There are people who do it and, and use the same term uh, just to describe strengthening plot, uh, maybe even cutting. Um, but I think punch up, uh, I, I like to think of it as just adding jokes or strengthening the jokes that are there, strengthening the characters. Um, if you've got someone who is supposedly lazy, we'll put in better lazy jokes. Keeping consistent with what they've created for the pilot, the movie, or the uh, or the situations, but giving them choices. We sometimes give four or five choices for each line um, hmm. through a script. And you ask them, where is it not working? Although if it's a sitcom, they haven't taped it yet. And they don't know exactly where it's not working, but they know where they're not happy. The, we the... came in on... We came in on a, a, a Michael Caine movie once, Peter Bogdanovich's uh, Noises Off. And we went to uh, Spielberg's little uh, Amblin enclosure at Paramount. And um, you know, it would have been universal. And he just, they just played us the movie and then said, it's not, it's not working. They had shot the play, but they changed the order around. And so Punch Up in that case involved, we said, you need more scenes. So they got Michael Caine, I think for 
one night. They flew them in from London. They shot for one night. They had one interior remaining. They had, they said they had people in lobby and a bellboy who could speak or a, a whatever they call those guys in the, the theater, uh, the ushers who could speak and locations. They said, we're shooting here and you can go out into the alley and you can sit on the curb. We have a bus lane. And so we wrote scenes for those locations and they flew them over and, and shot overnight. And then he, then he flew back and that was that punch up. And those locations were all, it wasn't, there wasn't a company move. They were all right together. Right. Yeah. yeah. They didn't have, they didn't have to truck anything. But they just had to, he had the, there was costume changes, I'm sure. Um, he was mostly, as the director of the play, Michael was um, in his opening night or in his, in case I get called on stage, director outfit. So I think it was all done in one outfit. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And then after, after, the, um, after shooting and like not being on set for a while and realizing you have a callback to do reshoot, reshoots, there's hair and makeup continuity, right? They have to come right. in and go, all right, you need to look exactly like you looked three months ago. Let's right. do this. You weren't quite so gray then. What happened? <laughs> Well, I, I saw the review of my last picture. <laughs> the, uh, oh my God. Or, or even in COVID, it's like I, I, the weight I've gained in the last three months has just been atrocious. Really? <laughs> like, well, I, I don't know what happened. I know what happened. I got really depressed, you know, over the holidays. And then I'm just like, and then I kind of went and just total screw it mode. I don't need to get on a treadmill. I don't need to walk. I'm Superman. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm like, whoa okay and so if i had this if i was shooting something like november 15th and they were like we need a free to call back they're gonna be like we, we we're gonna have to angle this in a different they way they have to use an anamorphic lens on you do you know there's a scene in fortune cookie where walter Matthau walks up some steps and knocks on the door and he's let in and then it's a reverse from inside as he enters and he's 53 pounds lighter when he walks in because wow. he had a he had a heart attack on the a side of the cut and they had wow. to take six months off yeah he lost 53 pounds i don't know uh Yes, yeah, the fortune cookie. I don't know the how far into the movie it is, but that's that's the biggest change I know of. And I know in Billy Wilder's uh, one, two, three, uh, Horst Buchholz broke his leg. They had told him to stay off motorcycles. You know, you're in the movie. We're shooting continuity. Yeah, and he broke his leg, and they had to go down for ages. And it was the waiting was one of the things that persuaded Jimmy Cagney that he didn't want to do movies anymore. He says this is just not a life. And as he wrapped that movie, he walked off. It was 1961, too, and he didn't come back until Ragtime. Huh. To me. Was that not nearly the 80s? Wow. Just being frustrated with sitting and waiting, sitting and waiting. A lot of sitting and waiting. Whereas writers don't have to do uh, that. Well, you, you know, you sit at your computer for untold yeah. hours. Yeah. The forms that I've worked in, which have been sitcom, a lot of animation, and late night, it's mostly hurry, hurry. Mm-hmm. Late night in particular, you're usually putting something on that night. This night show used to go up at 5.30. Exactly. As the sweep secondhand went by, we never had a hold. And you were done by 6.30. And so you knew that whatever you were working on at 10 o'clock that morning, whether a monologue or a sketch or, or lines for the, for the guest host, that was it. That was going to be it tonight. No, no messing with it. What, that, what, is the, what is the frenzy of that pacing like when you're, when you're working in a... Um room like uh when you're working in a room that's for like johnny carson that was the time um because we started as term writers uh daryl and i who've been working together now for 50 years uh writing together since we were kids um we started as part of those that turnstile writing where it was again as irresponsible as being a roadie 
the head writer would say, we're doing a piece about the fact that they're talking about replacing the American penny. And you write a bunch of jokes about getting rid of the penny. And at the end of the day, you go home. And maybe that night you, you turn on the TV while you're writing next day's monologue and you find out if they used anything. Mm-hmm. When you're the head writer though, whatever you tell John, whatever you hand Johnny, who I've idolized you know, my entire life to this point, he's, you're saying, you have to do this tonight. And you are imagining him looking at it and reading it with that. And yeah, it always, it turned my gut nearly every day. I still have nightmares about it. And the uh, show ended nearly 30 years ago. And is it, is it like the, res, is it the responsibility you have where you're just like, these better kill, he, he better be so on board with these. This is the, or, or is it the other way around? This is a night where he realizes that I'm not funny at all and I can't handle a room and I'm fired. <laughs> Um, we've had those experiences with other hosts, but Johnny was a, was a dreamer. We were there for six years. <clears throat> and uh, there had been a difficult period with the previous head writer. And when we took over, Johnny was actually very le- relieved by a lot of things. Also, the fax machine had just started being wide, in, getting into wide use, 1988. And so we suggested when he took us down to his uh, office one day and said he fired everybody else. Uh, we said, you know, we, you don't have to keep getting the material on the day you're doing it. We can fax stuff to you in advance, not the monologue, but um, anything else you're going to do during the week. If you have a sketch, we can send it to you. If you don't like it, cross stuff out and we'll replace it. This is what we, this is what we do. He was very pleased at that. And uh, we started going out to his house, the uh, five writers every Monday morning for orange juice and coffee and a chat just to lay out the week and to talk about what was going on in the world and to get a better idea than you would from being terrified at your desk every day of what he was amused and upset and horrified by where his antenna were pointing. And it, that helped to take a lot of the pressure off the feeling that, oh, yeah, he likes me, <laughs> the, the, the mistaken impression that your boss likes you. Um, <laughs> and, and getting a little bit under the, little bit under the tent as he chatted about uh, some restaurant. He said, oh, don't ever go to this place, guys. You know, the food tasted like this or that. And you think, well, do you want to do a, can we do a spot on that? Yeah, why not? Oh, I'm going to force you guys to eat there first. And it did gradually get less harrowing. But we, we got a break after we took over as head writers in, in 88. <laughs> we, we got a Christmas break of a week and we're both Canadian and Daryl and I both went home to our families in Canada. And both reported later that we were kind of hoping the airport would be snowed in and we wouldn't be able to return. I mean, it had been so gut grinding every day to turn over basically this intricately carved sausage sculpture you've made and just wonder if the dogs are going to attack it. <laughs> you know, like when you hand material to an agent or if, if you, although audiences uh, for short story readings, for poetry readings are usually generous. They want you to succeed. Late yeah. night audiences are not necessarily so generous. Plus, uh, the, big un- the big unknown in late night, I've done four late night shows. I did Magic Johnson a few years later as, as an example of a bomb. Wow. And um, Alan Thicke a few years earlier. But the late night audiences usually in those days had been on the plane all day. Or they'd been driving from the airport. Or they'd been in an RV. They did not have the news on. They had not had a daily newspaper. And so when he came out and said, uh, you know, good evening, I'll be your... I'll be your lucky runway puppy tonight. Three quarters of them had no idea about whatever story that was referring to that the rest of the country was laughing at. And this was pre-YouTube, pre-the yeah. pre the word meme. Yeah. And when you handed stuff to a host because you read 31 papers that week and you were saying, trust me, they, they, capital T, they 
will uh, will get this. You just you just never know. Wow. What a great idea to on Monday morning to have a chill chat with him because it's it's almost like um, the writers can feel the vibe and that and that's where the juice comes like when he's just talking about uh, oh yeah I just had a bad dinner the other night and it's just like wait a second and, it, and you could really just kind of like really stay with his personality almost in a yeah. certain way. Yeah, you read him and you bounce stuff off him. Um, I don't think we had done that for, well, there's one other late night host we had done this similar thing for, but with Johnny, it was the first time he'd ever done it and he'd been on the air 25 years. Um, he had, I guess, we had said to him earlier that he was getting pages with a surname in the top right corner every day in monologue and he didn't know who these people were necessarily. There had been a very high turnover. And I always feel if you know the person who wrote the jokes and you can kind of picture them thinking and saying it, it helps sell them somewhat. Yeah. If you have the tall, crazy, six-foot, red-headed Irishman, you, you see him and hear him when you're reading the line, and it gives you a bit of an angle on it. And I thought if we all went out and started seeing him regularly somewhere, he suggested his house, that that would help. And I think it did. But, yeah. but, it, but that became its, a separate um, source of uh, agita as well because we had to entertain him for two hours. He was totally laid back, sitting in gym, uh, usually a tennis shorts uh-huh. in a pavilion that he owned with a tennis court across the street from his house. And we took props, we took puppets, we took anything we could to not have dead air for two hours. And two hours is, was twice the length of the show. Yeah. You know, I would take, uh-huh. a, I would take a, a taster's choice bottle with a little picture of a guy sipping from a cup that I thought looked like Michael Dukakis and say, look, you know, is, is, could, this be, could, we trans- could this be a transfer spot? And he would look at it and, and laugh maybe, in which case, yeah, probably. Or we would <clears throat> kind of have an eyebrow one of the other writers and they would say, yeah, 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 I was listening to radio the other day and the local news guy said, and you just try to see if you can get his eyebrows up, if you can get him to go, well, that's funny or that's interesting or uh, yeah, yeah, we haven't done anything like that. A lot of times though, I mean, we'd only been there for four years. He would say, oh, we did that in, uh, <laughs> you know, 1969. Uh, wow. You guys yeah. should look it up. It's the talking giraffe spot. And so you know, we, we couldn't be familiar with that much of the show's history. You know, we were five when it started. Right. And um, the, the, uh, the idea that you have to put on your late night show for Johnny Carson every Monday morning just strikes me as hilarious. Oh, <laughs> just like we... my audience. Oh, yeah. Johnny Carson gets to do a show every night, but we have to do a Monday morning show for Johnny Carson. <laughs> And we would meet beforehand. There was a little restaurant in Paradise Cove about a five mile drive from his house uh, on the coast in Malibu. And the writers would gather and we're in our best shoes and our ugliest, um, least comfortable dress up tie and shirt and stuff to go to his place. And we would order breakfast and coffee two hours before the meeting. And uh, we would go around and say, okay, then you say this. And then if I say that, and then you pitch the thing, didn't you have a story once about the time you were writing for David Brenner? We'll tell that story, he'll love that. Um, and uh, we rehearsed, we rehearsed wow. the two hour rehearsal for doing the show. Yeah. Cause that was the best gig on, you know, the best gig going. I think, I think Johnny brought in one quarter of all the advertising for money for NBC. Uh-huh. And so, uh, yeah, you could get, one bad joke, man, and you could be out of there like a like a like a, like a spit watermelon seed. You'd be gone. 
I love the idea of it because, you know, I was thinking, oh, you guys just show up and it's like, duh, 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 let's no, you got to you got to go rehearse the show before you do the show for Carson before he does the show. <laughs> so, yeah. And then when it actually started, when he would drive in every day at two, the monologue, uh, he got five different sets of people's takes on whatever um, the news that day was. So he would just go through them all. And he would put a little dot beside the ones he liked and then number them. And that would be the order they'd be cue carded in. And we would sometimes go and look at the cue cards beforehand. But the sketches, there was no rehearsal until the day of. So if you had something that involved bringing an elephant on stage, let's say, or sliding a giant reproduction of an oil tanker on stage so he could take a Ginsu knife out and cut the hull open and flood the stage with oil, we got one rehearsal. Um, if it was something that exploded or leaked, they would sometimes make a double. Um, Johnny financed the show. It actually was his show at that point. So he would decide whether to spend the money for, say, um, I think I mentioned in the book, the Gatling gun head, which was a, a housewife in curlers. And every curler was a miniature um, heat seeking missile. And they fired off her head in order across the top and exploded next to the audience. Well, it was $6,000 to make that wig. And I asked the props guy later, I said, how do you, how do you reload it? What's the process now? He said, we can't reload it. It's ruined. We built two of them. Wow. It's $12,000 for one joke out of 20 in the desk spot. Um, wow. And so Johnny would do a quick run through. He was um, not the most patient guy. You think of how long he'd been doing it and how many iterations of whatever jokes he had seen. He was always on the edge of thinking, I'm sure, if this doesn't work, if it doesn't kill, if it doesn't look promising, if we're repeating ourselves, scrub the whole thing, let's just do blue cards tonight. So you give the audience a piece of cardboard and a pencil and answer their questions or Karnak or one of the other fallback spots like Stump the Band. Huh. And then we would all slink broken men back to our uh, offices and then maybe go out and drink and curse him. <laughs> yeah, well, and he was, they, they were taping in Burbank, right? Yeah, we're in Studio One Burbank. Yeah. Which is but, gone. Is it? It's gone, McCready, to quote the thing. The um what what place where would you go for drinks after? Are the places still around? It was Chadney's across the street and a newish um dressed up place with Alphonse Musha prints called Daltz and slummy places, the smokehouse. And uh depending on uh how far afield we wanted to wander. I mean, there were some nights when we felt just like we take this, just take some gin behind the dumpster. I think that'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Leave your jacket here just in case. Yeah. And your shoes. And he had to commute from Malibu to Burbank every day? He drove in every day. Yeah. They had offered him to fly him in or, or chopper him in, but he liked driving. He loved driving. We would see him sometimes. Um, we'd pass him driving home with his, uh, and his white Corvette license plate, one NPL 919. I would watch for it because you didn't want to, you didn't want to get anywhere near him if it had been a bad bad week or bad show you'd back off and change lanes oh yeah if you're on the highway yeah get yeah. get into your gig oh my god that makes so much sense i think he wore he wore a hat or or glasses or something i, I don't i don't think he ever got you know, run off the road or anything but uh, people might now and then wave at him yeah not i not i <laughs> i know like... brandon i know butter <laughs> <laughs> Wow, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, and uh, what was Alan Thick like? I, as a kid, I used to love Thick of the Night, and it was kind of oh, like, yeah, I, you know, I was young, and I th for some odd reason it was on my radar, and it was just like Thick of the Night, and I thought he was the coolest guy in the world. I don't know why. He certainly was. He was the most suave. Yeah, the boys like this. He was kind of like a human Yogi Bear. 
Yeah. Hey guys, how you doing? <laughs> and he had done the same show um, as a daytime show, and then as a nighttime recap comedy show called Fast Company in Canada, out of Vancouver. Oh. And we had written for that show first, and then that was our first show in LA. Um, he called us up one time um, in my little crappy little apartment in Oshawa, Ontario, and, and said he had a, Fred Silverman was giving him money to develop a syndicated talk show, and they're going to go up against Carson, and it's going to be on the Metro Media Network, which was a newly formed network, and, and Silverman was behind it, guy who'd run all three major American networks, and would we be interested in coming down and working on it? So we came down for next to no money, just with the idea that this will be cool, even if it doesn't work out. And it was mayhem. Start, starting up a talk show is very hard. It was very hard with him. It was hard with, uh, with Magic on Fox in 97, 98. Um, Johnny, on the other hand, was just like, the train slows down, you get on, someone asks you if you want to drink. You know, it was all so smooth. They've been doing it all for so long and didn't have to make those stupid decisions that, I mean, we wasted eight months before, John, before Alan hit the air. Um, Imagine having writers for six months writing material, and by the second show, you run out of material. Wow. That's what happened because he had messed with, or or guest artists had messed with, or removed, and the musicians that they couldn't get the intro for, or the clearance for the use of the blurb for, etc. It's chaos. Wow. People were carried out of there with heart attacks. People were carried out on wow. stretchers. Rick Dukeman, the actor, had a had a heart attack and his spleen exploded in an alley doing push-ups for an insert film shot. There was, there was two producers fired. One didn't find out till he came into his office and read about it in Variety at his desk on oh the show. Oh my God, that's a, that's a real occurrence. <laughs> there, was, there was staff replacements. Um, you would come back from lunch and one of the producers had worked on a show called Fantasy where he had really loved the staff and the show had been canceled. And this show all had their fantasy jackets. And you come back from lunch sometimes and there'd be someone wearing a jacket with fantasy written on it, sitting at your desk using your phone. We would, they called it being fantasized. <laughs> and, and you were gone. They had brought in someone who they liked or someone had just, you know, we've been there for six months, eight months working in development. And this producer, director, I can't remember what it was, but he'd come on and just said, you know, I like this girl named Sylvia, put her on. Yeah, that'd be a good desk for her. And, uh, we got bounced out to the toilet once. We came back from lunch and they had moved our Daryl's and my typewriter and no phone and our little file to the men's, men's washroom. The, the typewriter was plugged in next to the sink. And at that point you're like, I don't think we have much longer here. We quit, finally. We oh, had okay. just been introduced to Mickey Rooney. <clears throat> A friend of ours worked for Mickey's agent and Mickey was doing Sugar Babies on Broadway. And then uh, after that touring, and he wanted fresh material every night um, to be able to do a little monologue spot that commented on the day's events. And as he toured on the cities he visited and his writer of many years standing had a heart attack and died apparently. And so Mickey was at the water cooler at the agent's office saying, my writer died, you know, I need a writer. And uh, Janie Mudrick, good friend said, well, I know these two guys, they're really sharp and fast. And, uh, and uh, Mickey said, give me their numbers. So she called us and said, Mickey Mooney's going to call you. This was before we got on with Johnny. And Mickey just uh, just yacked our ears off for a couple of minutes and then said, so send him the material, hang up. You know, so we did that for, we wrote for him for about 12 years. Wow. When, when, so 
when at when the Alan Thick deal came through, did you have aspirations that you were going to end up in LA, or were you like we're in Canada? Oh, yeah. and we have there was okay. there was nothing to do. We had okay. We had um, we had filled every ashtray in Canada um, yeah. that was that was waiting for our little comedy cigarettes. <laughs> we had done radio, stage, personal appearance material. Um, we had done industrial shows, written for comics, cartoonists, stand-ups, the only sitcoms on the air. It was usually, the CBC had one sitcom per year on the air, and we had just been blackballed from that by a hypoglycemic producer who took offense to our suggestion that we could write for his show. And that was it. We were done. <laughs> we had burned to the country. Huh. And then, um, because of the stuff we had done for Alan and some others, you wrote for Joan Rivers and some stuff for Rodney Dangerfield, a Canadian... Um, interview show a 60 minutes of canada at the time called uh called the fourth estate fifth estate asked if they could do a profile on us just as we got hired to come down and visit alan in la and so um <laughs> we were the focus after because we didn't have the money for plane tickets we took mm -hmm. the 78 hour we rode the hound all the way down to la ended up um hallucinating daryl thought he was on a boat at the end neither of us could sleep in a moving vehicle. Wow. We showed up at Alan's house after, after managing to finally stop our rent-a-wreck, which we got at the, uh, at the bus terminal, which wouldn't actually stop until we disconnected the battery. And that was how that had started. Uh, but oh. we had yearned. They had, they had done that interview at just the right time. And we were just, we had this three-week visit to LA and they got to follow us down here and interview Alan. And uh, it was all cut together. By the time we got to see it that fall, we were back in our freezing little apartments with no prospects at all because what we had been working on was a show of Alan's that had just just now wrapped up. And it was a year later that uh, that finally um, he, he got his nighttime show, but they had asked us on the interview show, well, what's, what's the end for you guys? What's the biggest thing, the biggest possible dream? And we both said, well, obviously writing for Carson. Wow. Who, who was like crossing through a membrane into another world. It was yeah. like, uh, going into that closet in the C.S. Lewis novel and ending up in Narnia. It didn't seem possible that you could be there. It didn't seem like there could be such a thing as a room that contained me and Johnny Carson. Uh -huh. Like how, no, no, that, that's not gonna happen. But we were, we were working for him three years later. So, so you go back to um, Canada, were you pretty disheartened and really trying to get back to LA or what was- uh, Oh, the whole time, yeah. yeah. We had been writing for a cartoonist named Bob Faves, who drew a strip, which is still going on today. I think his son picked it up called uh, Frank and Ernest. And it had one time been the third or fourth most syndicated strip in uh, the US, in the world actually, after Peanuts and uh, Wizard of Id and a couple of others. And it's still running. Um, Bob Faves died, but his son is doing it. And so we had that little bit of LA and we sometimes could write for a comedian who was in LA, in LA but you know that you've gotta, you've gotta have an apartment here. If someone calls up and says, yeah, I'm gonna meet you for lunch. And you say, well, actually I'm in Guelph. There's no way that you just written off immediately. And when we yeah. arrived, arrived back in Canada, all our friends were saying stuff like, well, we knew that wouldn't work out. And I uh, saw so you're back, huh? You know, get back in the traces, you know, there's a job at Kmart now I know about. And we were still writing for six or eight dollars a joke for, for radio shows and, and for cartoonists and doing training films for the Canadian Department of Employment and Immigration and week, um, week and year end uh, humor skits for organizations like GM and IBM 
where everybody would get drunk and couldn't hear anything we had written anyway, just desperately not trying not to go to have the work on a loading dock yeah. with the idea of LA, LA, we'll get out of here, we'll get out of here. If you go to work on a loading dock, there's health benefits, the, price, the, the pay isn't that bad. It's almost like a golden handcuff where you're just like, well, now, right. now, right. now the decision to leave that is that the stakes seem higher, but if you stay hungry and you're still, yeah, you know. And Daryl said for many years, um, when we were, I mean, because I went to college for a couple of years and we were writing stage plays and a little bit of TV while I was studying journalism. But he said, it's a, he said one of his greatest fortunes was that he had no other talents. I think he did one day on a construction site and someone tipped a, a vat of tar on his leg and he ended up in the hospital. So he said, it's to my great advantage and fortune that I had no other talents because if I did, I would have done anything rather than eat fish sticks 360 days in a row. It's, there's a beauty to that too. And it's so wonderful that when you were, uh, the three years before you got on Carson, you, you both, you were like, we want to be on Carson. And that just sounded like a pipe dream. And what is it when writing? Yeah. Yeah. We kept writing material and giving it to agents and other people, agents and managers and saying, here, we think this is pretty good. And they would look at it and go, yeah, yeah, this isn't, you're not, you know, this, this doesn't work. And it was the exact packet that eventually got us the job. Really? We didn't go through an agency. We didn't go through a manager. Nobody would take the material. So encouraging thought here for, for young aspiring writers. A friend of ours knew a guy who was the second assistant band leader on The Tonight Show who said to him one night, you know, they just let a couple of writers go over you know, at the show. And Ted said, I know some guys. Would you read some material? And, uh, and he said, sure. And he liked it and he gave it to someone and he gave it to someone and he gave it to Johnny and Johnny read it and hired us. Um, material that the Writers and Artists Agency had turned down that the manager who had tried to put us on, he was putting us on roast, Dean Martin roasts and Love Boat and, and ABC's funniest joke I ever heard and pickup work that was a hundred bucks or 200 bucks, or if you were lucky, a thousand. And he said, you know, I hold this stuff, hold this material to, to my ear. I don't hear the laugh. Well, Johnny loved it. And all these people later, when we had risen to head writer, would end up calling us sheepishly and asking if they could get tickets for you know, Friday night for out of town guests. Oh, I don't know. I don't see anything open here. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, it's so beautiful because it's that there's like the gatekeepers, you know, and 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 sometimes we we give too much um, reverence to the gatekeepers who can uh, give our material to someone that we really want when just have just continuing to work on your continuing to work on your craft, continuing to just be in LA, be around, you know, just be around people. And all of a sudden the second assistant band lead, the second assistant to the band leader, yeah. you're, it's just like, you're there, but it's, it's not, um, it's not like, Oh, this is, this happens out of the blue. It doesn't happen out of the blue. Cause you guys were putting in the work you were here. You were, you know, it's, it's a, it's a thing. And then to get that little moment, the only way to get that moment is all the work mm. you guys put in. And we had taken another job uh, between uh, Thick of the Night and Mickey. Uh, we had taken a sitcom to, to survive, but the sitcom was back in Canada. It's funny, back in Canada, no one would hire us because they'd look and see the address. And all these guys are Canadian they, and they're still living in Canada. They can't, they can't be any good. <laughs> we um, get an address suddenly and a phone number in the, in the 213. And all of a sudden they're calling from Toronto saying, are you available to, to story edit a sitcom? So we went up and did Don Adams' last sitcom, check it out. Um, oh wow! I think it ran, if not a hundred, then at least ninety episodes. It was in syndication plus CBC, and I don't know. I think it ran in first run syndication in the U.S. 
So we were story editors on that for the first season. And then the second season, Daryl and I are pretty low key guys as, as writers go. We were both British born, both pretty shy, pretty quiet and far more so then. this was 1985. And we didn't have what it took to come up with those great big Ed McMahon belly laughs when they were required, required at table readings. So Don would read his line and there would be the punchline and all the other writers would be, oh, 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 to try and sell the script. And we just sat there and penciled in, you know, medium laugh. And Arnie Sultan, who had uh, worked on Get Smart, and this was, it turned out to be his last show. He said, you guys aren't actually doing that much here. Why don't you go back to LA? And uh, sort of let us go with a, with a script deal instead. Huh. And then uh, six months later, we were being nominated for an Emmy for, um, for The Tonight Show. And, and Don Adams marched into Arnie's office with a copy of Variety slapping it and said, so the guys you fire are now being nominated for Emmys, I see. Could you possibly fire a few more then hire them back? But that was very nice. Yeah. How was Don Adams to work with? Was he fun? He was, um, he was narcotized a lot of the time. He was making good salary but his apartment that they put him in Toronto was right next to uh, Greenwood Raceway. And he was the horse guy. He was one of those guys who you put him anywhere near a horse and he would, he'd be selling his shoes to bet on it within, uh, you know, oh, even yeah. if the ground was cold. So I think he went through a lot of that. And then he took a lot of downers. And uh, I don't know if this is generally known or not, but hey, he's dead. Yeah. Um, he sometimes would come out and do the warm up for the show. It was not in his contract and there was a warm up, warm up person assigned to that but when he heard the laughter start he just couldn't resist and Don would come out and do a pretty good stand-up he was pretty sharp a great person great personality we would get him we would get him to do Tennessee tuxedo and other impressions of things he'd done and get him to say um missed it by that much <laughs> and that's got to be I mean, that anyone who says it like that immediately knows get smart and, yeah and yeah but he was he was um he was not too happy to be up in the cold with only horses to bet on and no no friends i think yeah you know considering his his career and how much stuff he'd done and he was yeah he was he was the highest paid person probably on television at that time in canada it was it was sending american stars north that, that got the canadian agencies uh, uh the guilds along with the agents of of uh, canadian performers and writers to insist on some sort of parity with whatever star they they brought up there. So as they suddenly were luring talent north to come up to either Vancouver or Toronto, some lucky Canadian star would get uh, equivalent. Um, and it, it, it helped a lot of people. Yeah, that's cool. The, um, I was going to ask you a question. I totally forgot. Hey, I'm you're the host. You have, you have a whole just, list of these questions. No, I just Where's looked, your cue card, I look man? in your dreaming eye, dreamy eyes and I just get lost. I'll close my dreamy eyes. I know they have been known to, <laughs> the effect of them has been known to knock schoolgirls off their bicycles. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I got, I got lost in the Don Adams uh, story there. The, um, what was it? What was it like? When you found out, when you found out you were getting an Emmy for, what was it like getting your first award? I mean, we, we never got an award. We got, oh, uh, okay. except, except for when the show won a special award on, in the last year, which was more of a, you know, you've been on for 30 years, you deserve something award. So I have a little plaque somewhere, but 
Um, we were nominated four times, so we went to the, went to and get some very very nice food and met some beautiful people yeah. four times. But we were usually up against Letterman and Saturday Night Live, which uh, you know had these massive staffs, and uh, we were up against the award shows. We lost to the Oscars one year, so it's a show that only had to do one show a year, right? And we were doing multiples per week, and yeah, everybody knew. It's just, yeah. I can't complain. Cannot complain. Who needs the awards? When you're going to this, I used to, this is what I used to think. Oh my God, if I ever wanted an, like an Emmy, I'd go like, I'd go there, I'd get the top shelf cocktails. I'd make sure to drink as much as possible. And I, and, and then, but now, I, I, now, you know, with a little bit of uh, maturity, we'll say in quotes, <laughs> um, it's like, I don't think I would even have a drink because you have, I would want to stay really uh, on target if, if we won yeah. and plus I'm with my coworkers, essentially, it's not a big blowout. And you know, and you know what I would say about award shows and the, uh, the red carpet generally, and I think it maybe even extends to the whole idea of being on certain shows or hosting shows is that what people are anticipating and seeing is glamor, glamor. And they sometimes think, I believe that glamor is this shiny warm red thing that if you're actually there, if you're on the carpet, that glamor mist must descend over you and you have this must have this orgasmic warm powerful potent glowing feeling glamour is for those watching there is no glamour experienced by the people on the carpet you're hot and uncomfortable your shoes hurt you don't recognize that woman who's calling your name there's an x across there with his newer younger a girlfriend, you can't remember the lines you were gonna say. Someone just told you that the person you mentioned in the killer joke you were gonna do had a stroke last month and, you're, and your brain is dying. It's panic, panic, panic. Same as sitting uh, on a talk show set with that wire going into your ear and someone waiting at the camera that's on and someone else with the cue cards, someone else with the countdown to cue, someone else with the countdown cues for commercial and a star sitting next to you who you have actually Googled naked pictures on. Yeah. It's an extraordinarily sweaty, uncomfortable, high pressure thing. And to appear calm under those circumstances is to put out that glow to give the audience the feeling that glamour is there much the same way that you look at the rainbow and think, oh, if I walked there, I'd see the end of the rainbow. Mm -hmm. It's not there. Yeah. It's interesting to get, it, it, I've always been intrigued, you know, I've been intrigued by the interview because I just love interviewing. I'm, I'm, I, this, I just have a passion for it. And um, just when, you know, back when I was younger, I, I really bought into the facade. It was just like, oh my God, they're just, they're just yucking it up with these stars. This must be great. But it's that the, um, the manufacturing of forced intimacy on the camera for a segment seems like it's pretty intense. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, even, even if it's not on you uh, to do anything really meaningful. Well, I didn't go on camera much at the Tonight Show. Dara went on once or twice, I think. We did a spot called, uh, remember when they used to have people on, they would set up a million dominoes and knock them down. You hit the first one and it's the next one and they fall for seven minutes and then they spell out words and then finally fireworks go off and the audience applauds. We uh -huh. pitched Johnny a, a spot one day. I said, you know, what if we set up 500 out of 1,000 Domino's pizza delivery boys? and knock them over. I said, we can't do it all in the studio, but you could have the first seven in the studio. We'll, we'll dress up, get us some outfits and we'll, and we'll topple, 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 go through the curtain and cut to tape. And we can, I bet we can put together a really, so he loved the idea. And we had a guy, uh, Richard Friley in Kentucky who had a, 
a lot of chutzpah and went to Domino's and said, how'd you like your, your logo to be on uh, the Tonight Show? All you got to do is give us hundreds and hundreds of Domino boxes and, and costumes. And they did. And he was shot all over Ashland, Kentucky. He had lines of people going down to the edge of a river. And then the last guy shot across the river and hit someone who died on the other side and fell and started. He did an overhead shot. Um, in a gymnasium somewhere where the people fell spelling out NBC. Uh -huh. But to start it all, Johnny had to walk to center and I didn't want to have anything to do with that because I cannot, I just can't even stand in front of a television camera, but Daryl did. And he said, walking through that curtain was the most terrifying thing. We've been on the show for, for five years. The most terrifying thing he ever experienced. He said, you walk out, the lights are in your face. This is 500 people. Studio A was a big audience. He said, and I couldn't have, he said, if I'd had to deliver a line or speak or uh, even swallow my spit, I couldn't have done it. Wow. Um, it's so interesting because you've been writing comedy for so many years and you've written for stand-up. So that's what I was going to ask you is, have you ever tried stand-up? Did, no. did you ever get on stage? No. What, and what was, why didn't you want to get on stage? What was, why, why I, was it I writing? Have, I would have early on, it just said that I was shy and terrified mm -hmm. and that I didn't want to, um, that I didn't want to try it. I was scared. I would rather give jokes to other people who knew better, who'd been doing it for a few years and could take a pencil and go, you know, no audience is going to laugh at that. Oh, that's good. You know, they'll love this. It's like that other gag. I didn't have that experience. I wasn't willing to. I'd seen people. I'd, I'd written for first timers and open micers and seen them um, panicking, panicking um, terrifyingly and didn't want to do that. Later on, I would say that I probably realized I didn't have the skill set. I didn't have a personality to build on. I didn't have what people like Stephen Wright say or Rita Rudner had that something innate that they knew exactly where the laugh was. They knew what to what to build on. Yeah. Patton Oswalt, you know, there's just a certain bainty little energy, and oh, I know I I could write for I could write for any of these guys. You know, Mickey Rooney would say I would coming out in drag, and I'm a woman, and her husband is long suffering, and we would just oh, got it exactly. Couldn't do that. What was what one of the what was mm. one of the first jokes that you heard a uh, stand-up deliver that was one of your jokes and it got, and it killed the room. It was great. What, what was, do you remember that? Oh man, I have a terrible memory for what works. And, yeah. and an unfortunate. Oh, do you have a, do you have a better memory for what doesn't for what work? what bombed. Yeah. Oh, well, we, let's get a bomb example. Although this is not necessarily a bad joke, but it did bomb. Uh, we wrote for the, uh, the Junos, which is the music awards in Canada. Uh, for Alan Thick hosting. He came out of the talks and he was the host for the live broadcast. Two weeks earlier, the uh, Geminis had aired. So this was the, it may have been more than two weeks. Uh, Geminis are the Canadian Oscars, right? So you had, okay. or maybe the Emmys. I've been away a long time. <laughs> and the host came out and mortifyingly said, um, welcome to the June host. He gave live, he said, so big laugh. This was, um, he was a musician. And, uh, and so when Alan came out, the, one of the opening lines we gave him was, oh, welcome to the Junos, or as Mo Kaufman calls them, the Gemini. So it was just, just a switch that everybody in the country would be familiar with. And Alan lived in LA, he lived in Malibu. So we, along with the joke, we sent a little explainer. Recently on the Gemini's, this happened. <laughs> Never explain your jokes, but we had to in this case, because yeah. we were doing something that was inside for an inside Canadian tuxedoed audience. Alan walked out as the band player, da, 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 da. and I'm watching at home, my little black and white TV, you know, starving in the cold, <laughs> my frozen dinner. And, uh, and he says, welcome to the, and he does the line and there's silence. 
what we didn't know, we didn't find it out for a day or two was that the tech on the show had fed the audio from Alan's mic, from the host mic to the TV, but had not fed it to the audience. So it was just a guy in a tux with his oh mouth moving. Oh my God. They just didn't hear it. But Alan, we knew, was thinking, those, those slimy Canadian bastards. <laughs> and he started to panic. He slapped his pockets like he was looking for, for the bill, for, the, for his wallet to pay and leave. Yeah. I turned the TV off. I, so so that, was, that was an early and horrifying, 1980, it probably was, experience of something that we'd written bombing. Which and it didn't bomb never, because it was, it, it was a technical what, issue. Yeah, but what's the reason anything bombs? Sometimes, you know, we did a spot for Johnny once. Um, it was called Graduating the Audience, <clears throat> which we thought was pretty strong. And he never did anything unless he liked it. If he wanted more material, he, he, he asked for, you know, rewrite these last 10 or something. So he was happy with it. Going on meant he was, he was, he was behind it. And it bombed. He came out behind a podium. And Ed said something like, it's graduation time around the country. Everybody's flinging their caps in the air. And you are no different. Tonight is the night you graduate as members of the Tonight Show audience. And here to graduate you is the dean, Professor John Wilson Carson. So out he comes. And just silence and bomb and ugliness. And he ended up almost dragging the podium back through the, uh, through the curtain. So the next day, I take the call from him at 10 AM. And uh, we had the next day's spot lined up. It was a prop spot. And I said, uh, <laughs> I said, we have uh, tonight's piece here. I said, if you can, if, if you want, we can put a little reference to, uh, to yesterday's debacle at the top. He said, no, 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 we're going to do it again. I said, do what again? He said, we're going to do graduating the audience again. It was a bad audience. And I said, I don't know if we can, because we, by that point, had gotten used to really crafting these things. We spent more than a day or two on every spot. Yeah. I, I don't know if we can, it's 10 a.m. I'm looking at my watch. He's going live at 5.30. I don't know if we're going to assemble another really good one by that time. He said, no, 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 I'm going to do the exact same one word for word. And I said, so do you want a new intro for Ed? So last night, if you were watching, he said, nope, exactly as if this was Tuesday. And I'm gonna show you how bad that audience was. Because the audience, as I said, had, had been traveling. Wednesday night's audience hadn't seen Tuesday's show. Maybe they had in the hotel, but more likely right. they arrived jet lagged and crashed in a hotel somewhere. So he came out the next night. A lot of people must've thought they'd had a stroke because Ed did exactly the same setup. And Johnny, without a word of explanation or apology, did the same jokes in the same order, and it killed. Wow. And I was standing backstage at the cheese tray, and he walks off and just walks past me with a little, a little waiter's nod, like, I told you. Wow, that's fantastic. So that's the difference that an audience can make, and he yeah. knew it. He knew it from the get-go. He knew, he knew it was a good bit. He, he really knew that it can go. And I love yeah. that he didn't reference it. It's no reference. We're going out there unapologetically doing it again because it's good. He was one of the bravest guys. Sometimes he would put private jokes in. He would say, you know, what if we put a, he would put in something. There were five of us material writers at the end there. And he would say, well, I want to put in a reference here for, uh, you know, because, uh, because of Smith's uh, uh, acquaintanceship with such and such a, an Irish author. And uh, we would go, sure. And he would do it. And there was the sound of maybe the band laughing and five of us backstage, but nothing else. Um, Gary Shannon would do that too. Gary, Gary guest hosted a lot in '86. He would sometimes do stuff uh, for the kids in the hall, as Jack Benny used to say. Did you get to write for Shanley too? Yeah. When, in fact, when the guest host came on, all the other writers on the show. So we come on. We're excited. We get new shoes. We go in. We're taking pictures of stuff, right? 
just in case this doesn't last. And then we learn that every other writer on the show has earned such seniority over the years. They don't want to pay him anymore. So what they've given them is a vacation for any time Johnny's gone. So when the guest host comes in, it's just me and Daryl. Wow. And one other guy who had been told he was being let go in a few weeks anyway, and he wasn't going to do anything. And then he was gone. And so it was just me and Daryl for whomever, for, um, and we did, we had Tony Danza, Bill Cosby, we had Shandling a lot. Um, he became the semi-permanent until Leno took over and Gary got the, uh, it's Gary Shandling show. And we would just write pages and pages of monologue because there was no sketches those nights. And uh, yeah, Gary would, uh, he'd come out, he'd start doing topical and at the first bomb joke, he would go into his act. Oh, and wow. We would like, we'd like take bets on how far he'd get into it. <laughs> I mean, if it killed, he'd keep going. It was all carded so he could read it all the way to the end. Did you see in Newport, Rhode Island today? But if anything got less than a, than a, a big guffaw, then he would, you know, yeah, I was driving down Sunset last night. Yeah, you would go right into his material. <laughs> the, um, I love that he went on to do Larry Sanders and that, that whole behind the scenes thing that they did for HBO, the, yeah, the series. Yeah. That was so like unique at the time and just so yeah. breakout and ballsy, you know? It was really he approached ballsy. Fred, he approached Johnny's producer, executive producer, Fred de Cordova, old uh -huh. Fred, to play the part that Rip Torn played. Huh. And Fred said, uh, Mr. Carson would probably have my testicles in a goodie bag by the time I got back to the office. So no thank you, sir, for your kind offer. Huh. And he approached Johnny's nephew. Um, Jeff Sotzing and asked if he wanted to be a consultant. And he, Johnny, who, uh, Jeff, who was on the show as well, said, oh, no, thank you. Yeah, wow. It wasn't exactly an omerta about Johnny and these, but we knew that they were looking for inside stuff to help develop stories. Yeah. And Rip, I, that show without Rip Torn. Oh, it. can you imagine? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Those great lines, so many great lines and takes. Yeah. Yeah. So fantastic. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. And for plugging my book, Comedy Writer, available on Amazon. <laughs> Fantastic, dude. That was great. Oh, that's so much fun. Well, I can go two hours with you easily. Um, Andrew Nichols on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, Comedy Writer, craft advice from a veteran of sitcom, sketch, animation, late night, print, and stage. Next week on the show, we talk to Kristen Hanna about her book, The Four Winds, which debuted this week on the New York Times bestseller list. Debuted as number one, so stay tuned for that. Keep reading, keep your chin up, keep your nose to the grindstone, write a book or an opera, do it this weekend, get inspired, don't let those critics get to you, and the worst critics being the one in our brains. Yes, kick them out, everyone has a story, and all it takes is to start writing it. So, have a great weekend. I'll see you next Wednesday on the Worldwide Pod Space and every Thursday on 101.9 FM KPCR LP Santa Cruz.